Hello and welcome to the Emergency Medicine Journal's Primary Survey Podcast with me, Sarah Edwards. And me, Rick Buddy. And this is for May 2023. Today we're going to talk again, uh, covering a smattering of topics, everything from women's health to medical errors to a bit of trauma and even a bit about hypercalcemia. So I'm going to get us started with the first paper, which is about the rates of perceived medical errors and its correlation with work-related factors and personal distress amongst emergency physicians. So this study was done all the way in China, uh, and the first author is Yan et al. And this was a national cross-sectional study that was done in 2018 across three months. Essentially, what they wanted to try and understand was the prevalence of self-perceived medical errors amongst emergency physicians nationwide and explore if there was any association of these medical errors with work-related risk factors, personal distress, and how that felt for the provider, so the emergency physician. Scores such as occupational stress was obsessed with an effort reward imbalance scale, there was PHQ-9 questionnaires, and a generalised self-efficacy scale were used to assess personal distress. So this survey had nearly 10,500 emergency physicians who completed the survey. 36% of these uh, reported poor self-perceived physical health, with 75% reporting a shortage of physicians within their emergency departments. 80% experienced verbal aggression, and nearly 80% of these physicians felt an effort-reward imbalance, as in what their effort they were given wasn't, you know, relating to them personally, and their effort and their reward wasn't marrying up. 35% of these physicians had major depressive symptoms, and nearly 45% of these physicians reported that they had done a medical error within the last three months. Factors attributable to risk factors of medical error, i.e. what makes you at risk. So higher educational level, if you're working in a secondary or a tertiary level hospital, if there are staff shortages and you happen to be in charge, the chief resident or the boss. Limitations, as you'd expect of the study like this, it was all self-perceived. We couldn't they couldn't marry up the self-perceived errors to actual errors and it was cross-sectional. The bottom line is, is that self-perceived medical errors are common and are significantly associated with the workplace environment. And they can cause a substantial amount of personal distress. What did you think, Rick? Well, I think this is a really important study, actually. It shows that medical errors are really common. And I was just having a look at the question they asked to find out if there had been any medical errors. So it was self-perceived, but they asked about major medical errors that had potential to cause patient harm or cause actual patient harm, not just minor errors. And, you know, the the rate of medical errors in the last three months was really startlingly high. And they showed a clear correlation with adverse well-being for the emergency physicians. And that reminds me of the work that uh, we did with Laura Howard when we interviewed emergency physicians about the impact of events that happen at work on their mental well-being uh, and it was really quite harrowing actually uh, the events had some substantial impacts on the well-being of emergency physicians so this is a really important problem this study sort of quantifies it and shows that it affects so many of us probably all of us really in our careers will make a number of important medical errors it has a massive impact on our well-being 
and our ability to function as emergency physicians. So clearly, it's really important that we, one, understand that medical errors are going to happen during the course of our careers. And number two, they're really tough on us and we need to be there to support each other and help ourselves help each other to get through. Absolutely, Rick. And you've hit the nail on the head. It's really important that we're looking out for each other. We're able to talk about it and that we're able to put strategies in place to help support those who are finding it difficult and prevent the person and the department feeling that they are in a vulnerable situation. Absolutely. I'm going to move on to talk about uh, something slightly different, which is abnormal uterine bleeding. And this was a study done in the US nationwide. Um, and it looked at emergency department visits um, for abnormal uterine bleeding. And the first author is by Grubman et al. Reflecting about this paper, it's something, you know, quite commonly I see within the emergency department is, you know, patients presenting with bleeding, vaginal bleeding, and, and trying to unpick that. Uh, what's causing it, what's important, what needs admission can be quite a challenge. So this cross-sectional study of women was done in 2016. And in that time, they had 1.03 million presentations across the US who presented with abnormal uterine bleeding. So they excluded the cancers and, you know, abnormal uterine bleeding in this context was dysfunctional bleeding, polyps, fibroids, postmenopausal bleeding and a smattering of other things that could cause it. What they found really was key was that you were more likely to present to the hospital if you were young and tended to be in reproductive age, be underinsured, live in a lower income or urban area, and you presented to an urban or a public hospital. Interestingly, around 11.2% of patients with this abnormal uterine bleeding were admitted, and you were more likely to be admitted if you were older age, you had higher income, you were better insured and you presented to a private hospital or a rural residence predicted inpatient admission. As I mentioned, you know, things being common. Uh, so the most common, one of the most common was fibroids causing dysfunctional bleeding. You've got abnormal menses, be it regular or irregular cycles. You've got some polyps in there and you've got some other, you know, mix of other presentations. I think the bottom line is, is that, you know, clearly abnormal uterine bleeding is a common presentation to the emergency department. And I think, you know, within this population, particularly within the US, we need to think about how best we support that and what the role of the emergency physician is and what the role of the gynecological services is. And if you listen to last month's podcast, we were talking about sort of pregnancy related bleeding and spontaneous loss um, and abortion of pregnancy related um, bleeding. The bottom line is, I think, bleeding in women, bleeding vaginally in women, be it pregnancy related or non-pregnancy related, is clearly understudied. And I think it's great that we're seeing more women's health papers really trying to address some of these challenging problems. Rick? Yeah, so I, I was struck by the association with a lack of medical insurance and the attendances at the emergency department. And just reflecting on my own experience in the emergency department, I remember some years ago, I used to see quite a lot of uterine bleeding, a uh, lot of dysfunctional uterine bleeding, and that seemed to tail off 
for a little while, but it seems to have recurred in recent years. I don't know if it's just my personal experience because uh, I have no, it's only anecdote this, but I've certainly seen more women with dysfunctional uterine bleeding in recent times. And I just wonder if that correlates with the pressures on our system, the primary care system and the urgent care system in general. We're seeing more of the women attending the emergency department because that's the best place to get um, the care that they need. So, I mean, clearly that, that uh, affects the epidemiology of it. It's something that we really need to be confident with managing in the emergency department because it is one of those complaints that generally doesn't require admission. I think you said 11% of the patients required a hospital admission. So obviously 89% of them are, are too tall to go home. Uh, so we need to be confident to give the uh, the right management to those patients first time. Uh, so I think this just emphasizes the need for us to be confident with differentiating the conditions that might cause abnormal uterine bleeding and with the management of those conditions that can be treated as an outpatient. Yeah, absolutely, Rick. And I think that reminds me that actually, you know, how well are we trained to manage some of these conditions? These are quite complex. And with a emergency department setting, you know, what is our role? What should we be prescribing? And how do we best serve this population um, of people who have this bleeding? Um, and I know as myself as a trainee within emergency medicine, I'm thinking, gosh, I see a lot of these patients and, and I'm really stuck sometimes as to what the best course of action is within the system that we work. So I think, you know, all four more um, studies about this to help, you know, improve our understanding um, to help our patients get better management. So we're going to sidestep a little bit. We're going from um, abnormal uterine bleeding to probably one of my least favourite presentations in the emergency department because it always stresses me out. And that's about BPPV, so benign paroxysmal positional vertigo. And uh, I'm going to hand over to you, Rick. Yeah, I'm absolutely with you on that one, Sarah. Dizziness is one of the most tricky conditions to manage in the emergency department because it's so hard to differentiate central and peripheral vertigo, I think. And a lot of us feel underconfident about doing so. Well, in this paper, which comes from uh, colleagues in Melbourne, Australia, they've done some qualitative research to look at um, barriers and facilitators to guideline recommended care of patients who've got benign paroxysmal positional vertigo in the ED. It's a really interesting study because they have a unique setup in Melbourne. I don't know if it's unique, but it's certainly very different to what we've got in the UK. They have vestibular physiotherapists working alongside the emergency physicians. And they, this is the setting where they've done this research. They've interviewed 13 emergency physicians and 13 physiotherapists, who I think were all vestibular physiotherapists. That means they're not musculoskeletal physiotherapists that we're used to working alongside in the UK. They are trained to look at patients who've got dizziness. Uh, what an interesting job and what a great resource to have in your emergency department. And they've interviewed them to see, you know, what, what are the things that prevent you from providing guideline recommended care and how could we do better? In particular, they focused on the two manoeuvres, the Dix-Hallpike manoeuvre, which, if you remember, that's for diagnosis of BPPV. And we've also got the, the Epley manoeuvre, which is for treatment of patients with BPPV. They've called that canalith repositioning technique, but I think that's the same as the Epley manoeuvre. They interviewed the medics and the physiotherapists and they sort of brought out the themes from those interviews 
And what they found is that some of the medical staff were actually a little little bit underconfident, just like you and I have expressed, about managing patients with this condition. Now, that might be a feature of the department they work in because it seems that what they generally do with patients who have dizziness is that they refer them to the vestibular physiotherapists. So there could be a little bit of de-skilling there because of the system they work in having such an excellent system means that the medical staff get less exposure. But it does reflect what you you and I experience as well in other EDs where we don't have this. And they felt that their knowledge was perhaps inadequate. One of the quotes that came out from the interviews was that if they had a patient with this condition and he had to undertake a Dick's Hall Pike manoeuvre, for example, they might sneak into a corridor and have a look on YouTube <laughs> at a video to see how to, to remind themselves of how to do it, which is interesting, just that lack of confidence that, uh, you know, I think all of us feel and particularly when you're junior you often feel that you need to look things up i remember it wasn't youtube when i was a senior house officer it was a oxford handbook of clinic of emergency medicine that i'd sneak a little look at and that's reflected the, the physiotherapists meanwhile felt that they had really good knowledge and training because they had a structured training program and their access to resources that could remind them how to do it so i think they felt much better supported the uh, medical staff also perceived that there were environmental factors that didn't support them providing guideline recommended care. For example, the lack of access to appropriate trolleys. So there were small cubicles that were designed for plastering patients. They were having to treat patients with dizziness in, but there didn't seem to be enough room to do these manoeuvres. And that's an important barrier. There was also the usual problem, not having enough time. To, to provide this care, which is interesting. The Dick's Hole Pike and Epley Maneuvers probably only take you about five minutes. But when you've got a crowded emergency department and a long waiting time, that can actually feel like it's adding a lot to the overall waiting time, you know, just bogging you down, especially if you've got to remind yourself of how to do the procedures. So there was a, perce a perception that time was a barrier as well. However, there were some facilitators as well, and one of them was that this can be a really satisfying thing to do. So there are a handful of things that are really satisfying in the emergency department, like reducing a pulled elbow or cardioverting somebody with SVT successfully. And this is one of them, because you know if you do an Epley maneuver and it's successful, the patient could get instant relief and you feel like a bit of a magician. So there's that satisfaction to be had. So all in all, this was quite an interesting study just to show the reasons why we may feel a little uncomfortable managing patients with dizziness and some of the reasons why that might motivate us to do a little better. And all in all, I found it a very helpful reminder of um, the condition, benign positional uh, vertigo. And if you need a little reminder of how to perform a Dick's Hole Pike and Epley Maneuver, rather than looking on YouTube, why don't you check out the full article? That's great. And who knew? I didn't even know those uh, physiotherapists existed. So I've learned something new today as well. Um, so moving on, we're going to go from uh, dizziness, as it were, to um, QT interval and its correlation with serum ionised calcium in the ED setting. So this paper by our colleagues in Sweden is looking at does corrected QTC interval correlate with serum ionized calcium in the ED setting? So myself and Rick, we were talking about this before the podcast, you know, where we're often told that high or low calcium can affect the QTC and cause prolongation um, in hypoglycemia and shortening in hypercalcemia. So what they did uh, between January 2010 and December 2014 
is they looked at all the patients who are over 18 who'd had an ECG recorded with a QTC any time between one hour and 12 hours after the arrival time and saw if they had a calcium, so a CA2 plus measurement within two hours of the ECG. Patients are either hyperkalemia with either hyperkalemia or moderate to severe hypokalemia were excluded, as well as patients with pacemakers of poor ECG quality. All the ECGs were digitally recorded and um, they found that Despite having a couple of different ECG machines in the department, they were effectively the same QTC that was produced. So after finding nearly 85,000 patients, um, this was whittled down to just over 60,000 patients who remained after applying exclusion criteria that we described. What they found was 0.7% of these patients had hypercalcemia, so raised calcium, And 2.6 of these patients had hypocalcemia, so low calcium. The median age was 63 years and half of them, 50.1%, were female. There was a statistical significance uh, between the correlation between CA2 plus and QTC with an R of minus 0.19. And the proportion of the variance within the QTC um, was very small with with that calcium. The bottom line is is that um, they couldn't find um, any statistical significance around be it high or low calcium and if it actually influenced the QTC. Despite there being some strong correlations, they um, in previous studies and previous literature, this couldn't be reproduced. So the point here is really is that QTC is not a sensitive indicator to CA2 plus changes and is unlikely to be reliable in predicting calcium disturbances. Hence, there's probably a weak correlation. I don't know what you think about this, Rick. So it shows it's a poor diagnostic test. I think we get the ECG back first in these patients. So sometimes we get patients who have been referred to the ED and, you know, maybe for some reason we suspect that they might have a low calcium or a high calcium. Perhaps it's been measured in primary care or perhaps it's for a patient with a risk factor for hypercalcemia, like uh, they've got cancer, for example. We might screen the ECG for evidence. And I guess what this is telling us is that the ECG is a poor diagnostic test they looked at the area under the rock curve didn't they for so for the long qtc in predicting hypocalcemia the rock curve had an area of 0.6 which is pretty poor so pretty poor diagnostic test for the long qt associated with hypocalcemia and the area under the rock curve for the other way around, looking at whether a short QTC predicts hypercalcemia was even poorer at 0.54. So a really bad diagnostic test, just showing us that actually, although there's this tiny weak correlation between QTC and uh, calcium levels, actually it's a pretty poor diagnostic test. It doesn't mean that we should just not record the ECG in patients with hyper or hypocalcemia, still a standard of care. But don't rely on the changes showing on your ECG. And that's important because, you know, we'll get the ECG back first and the lab results sometimes come quite a bit later. But if there are reasons to think your patient's got a very high or very low calcium, the absence of ECG changes clearly can't reassure you. No, absolutely not. And for our last couple of papers, we're going to go trauma themed. And this over to you, Rick. 
Yeah, so we're going to have a look at a couple of systematic reviews here. So the first one is looking at chest trauma. So this is a, a paper from Kerry Battle, uh, who's based in Wales. And Kerry's done a systematic review looking at risk factors for mortality in patients who present with blunt chest wall trauma. So Kerry developed the Stumble Score, a clinical prediction rule that's uh, quite widely used, I think, for predicting outcome in chest wall trauma. And this is a systematic review to look at risk factors uh, with an updated uh, overview of the literature. So essentially, they've, they've found 73 studies that have examined the association between different factors and mortality in patients with chest wall trauma. And the things that were predictive of mortality were older age. So if you're over 65, you are more than twice as likely to die. So that's an odds ratio of over two. Um, if you have a lot of rib fractures, you're more likely to die. So it looks at that in a number of ways. It just seems that essentially the more ribs you fracture, the more likely you are to die. And if you had in particular three or more rib fractures, then the odds of mortality was about twice as high as patients who had fewer rib fractures. And then last most uh, important finding really was uh, looking at pre-existing conditions so if you had cardiopulmonary disease in the background when you got your chest wall trauma, then you were almost three times as likely to die. There's an odds ratio of 2.86. So very important looking at uh, comorbidities for these patients. There were also associations with body mass index. So if you had a very high body mass index or a very low body mass index, similarly, then you were at greater risk of mortality. Uh, they didn't show an association with smoking in this uh, study, actually, but I wouldn't. I don't think we should take that as a reason to smoke if you've had chest trauma. They showed a weak uh, correlation with mortality being associated with mechanical ventilation. So a number of factors there that seem to be associated with mortality in patients who've sustained chest wall trauma. I think the thing that struck me about this paper was it wasn't a surprise but actually, should we be looking after these patients who are older with multiple rib injuries in a centre that can look after them? And this sort of relates to our previous podcast where we we're talking about um, the roles of MTCs, so major trauma centres in, in the older population. So it'll be interesting to see what other work comes out about this. And there is some literature about this. And that was the thing that really struck me about this. We need to get these patients to the right place to maximise their more, you know, minimise their morbidity and mortality. Absolutely. And do you know what? I think it's a good point to reflect on, you know, how we assess patients with chest wall trauma. The Stumble score is a really helpful tool. We were involved in the, the original pilot trial of Stumble, and I really liked using it for patients with chest wall trauma. Just as a guide, it doesn't sort of direct you as to what to do exactly, but it informs you as to the risk based on, the evidence, which is a really helpful thing. So moving on, I've also taken a look at another systematic review, this time looking at patients with shoulder dislocation. So one of the important things that we have to determine when a patient presents with a shoulder dislocation is whether they've got an associated fracture. Often, it's not difficult to know that a patient's dislocated their shoulder. We can diagnose that clinically just by examining them or looking at them even. So we come, we're confident that it's out of joint. It would be really nice if we could get that joint straight back in, uh, just reduce it without having to send the patient all the way to x-ray and back again before we crack on with the procedure. That would be better for the patient, they'd have less time in pain, and they'd have a more efficient care in the emergency department. However, we really don't want to miss a fracture that might be associated with 
their shoulder dislocation. So as a standard, we x-ray pretty much everybody who's got a shoulder dislocation. And in this study, uh, we've got a systematic review looking at the factors that are associated with fractures. And so the, the point is, we're trying here to find, is there a way of identifying those patients who definitely don't have a fracture so we can avoid the need to x-ray them? So the systematic review identified eight studies uh, that looked at this. Uh, and the, first of all, the prevalence of fractures was pretty high, 17.5%. So it's a significant problem for us. We do need to think about whether there might be a fracture. The next thing they did is to look at individual factors by themselves. Did they predict whether you've got a fracture? And the things that the most accurate predictors were age. So if you're over 40, you're more likely to have a fracture with a likelihood ratio of 1.8. If you were a woman, twice the likelihood of a fracture. So the likelihood ratio was two. If it was the first time you dislocated the shoulder, then you're more likely to have a fracture with a likelihood ratio of 1.7. And if you've got bruising over the humerus, then you are more likely to have a fracture. That one had a pretty high likelihood ratio. They ranged in studies from 3 to 5.7. So you've got bruising over the humerus. Really think hard about whether that patient's got a fracture. I think that pretty much rules in the need to do an x-ray, to be honest. The, the mechanisms were also uh, looked at. So, and there were no real surprises there. If you've got a high energy mechanism, you're more likely. If you've fallen down more than a flight of stairs, you're more likely to have a fracture. And if you've had a motor vehicle collision, you're more likely to have a fracture. No big surprises there. The last thing they did is the thing that I think is the most clinically relevant. And that's where they, they had a look at the accuracy of two decision rules for predicting fractures. So first of all, we've got the Quebec rule. Uh, now, the Quebec rule is pretty simple. It says that you need an x-ray if you've got any of this, these criteria. If your age is over 40, if it's your first ever shoulder dislocation, or if you've got a high-risk mechanism. I won't go into the, well, how they define a high-risk mechanism here, but you can have a look at that um, online easily. So three factors, you decide if they need an x-ray. And they looked at the accuracy of the Quebec rule they found it had a sensitivity of 92.2% and a specificity of 33%. So it's not perfect. It's quite good, but it's not perfect. You're still going to miss some fractures if you use the Quebec rule. So moving on from that, there's a second rule that they had a look at, which is called the Fresno-Quebec rule. And that includes a traumatic recurrent episode, age over 35, and high-risk mechanism. So another three things, but they're slightly different. And they found that the Fresno Quebec rule had a sensitivity of a hundred percent, both on derivation and validation. So it looks really good that we might be able to use that to avoid the need for x-ray. The only thing that we've got to bear in mind is that there was a single validation study that was quite small with 130 or so patients uh, from a Turkish cohort, which uh, showed the sensitivity of 100%. And I think we need slightly higher quality evidence than that to justify widespread clinical implementation. So bottom line is there are two clinical decision rules available. They're not bad. One of them might be usable in our practice, but right now the evidence doesn't quite cut it. So we need to wait for a bit more research before we use them. But in the meantime, we can see the factors that are clearly associated with the need for x-ray, older patients, high risk mechanism, and bruising over the humerus. 
Well, that was really interesting. And I was just struck me again, the Canadians with these joint rules, you know, Quebec, we've got now the, with the Ottawa rules, you know, clearly Canada is the place to be with trying to work out whether you should be x-rayed or not. Uh, we've got the C-spine rules from them as well. Um, I think that's really interesting. And I, and I, I agree. I think the Fresno-Quebec rule probably needs a bit more validation because that sounds super helpful because, again, it's a lot of radiation you know, we need to try and minimise the amount of radiation we're giving patients. Um, and I think it'd be really great if, if more work could be done about that. Absolutely. So I think that brings us to the close of May 2023's podcast. I'm going to say goodbye. And so am I. Goodbye for me. Goodbye and see you next time. Bye. Take care.